Welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I am your host, Linda Cherry. Today we will have the opportunity to study Genesis 1 and 2, Moses 3 and 4, and Abraham 4 and 5 with our teacher, Lori Denning. Lori is the author of Real Heroes of the Old Testament, a book that is coming out in May 2022. In the book, Lori points out that folks that we admire like Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Moses are real people with imperfections just like ours. She also points out that despite their imperfections, God uses them for special missions, even as he will ask us to perform certain missions. Lori has a real strength in pointing out the context of the scriptures that we are studying. She helps us to understand the historical detail, yes, but even more, why is what is happening so important for the people involved? And then she helps us to make our own personal application. How does this story affect our lives? What can we learn from the individuals that we are studying about? How can what we are studying make a difference to us? Lori's an expert at, sh- at pointing out patterns, as you will see, uh, as she describes the four different viewpoints of the creation and also how she points out that there's a need for having more than one version of the story. I especially appreciate Lori's clarification of Eve's role to Adam. Eve is called a helpmeet to Adam, but we often misunderstand that word and kind of belittle its implications. Lori helps us to understand that this is more of a sense of equality between partners and that that helper is in a savior's type of role. I know you will really appreciate what Lori has to share with us today. Thanks, Linda. I'm Lori, and I'll be your teacher today as we head into Come Follow Me Made Easier. Now, we are finally in the Old Testament, which is my favorite. I love it. It is dense. It is rich with history and culture, a lot of different Hebrew laws, ancient ideas, just things that make it complex and exciting to dig into. So we'll try to do that a little bit today. Now, to make it easier, let's give a little bit of structure what we're going to do. So first, I am going to go through a little bit of context and history. So that's number one. So we'll kind of take a look at the background, the history, how this stuff is all laid out. I think that actually really helps us uh, understand what we're diving into. So we'll start with that. Second, we'll jump into the actual content. So we're going to jump into today, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, parts of Moses, and parts of the book of Abraham. So there's a lot to go through. So part two, we'll go through the content. Then part three, we'll talk about the application. Now, what makes it really exciting as we jump into these scriptures is that there is so much material. So as we go through, I have a favor to ask you. I want you to be looking at the history in the background and asking yourself a question of, what did this mean to them back then? What was the scriptural author, the prophet, or the whomever was touched by the spirit that was contributing? What were they, what were they trying to say? What are they trying to communicate? Start with that question first. And then it leads to maybe our second question, which is your second challenge. Ask yourself, what does this mean to me? So when we ask ourselves what it meant to them, it maybe helps us understand what the Lord was trying to communicate, and we can apply it in our lives. So as we go through each of these things, the content, the material, and finally, some application, I want you to ask yourselves, what did it mean to them? And what does it mean to me? All right, should we jump in? Excellent. 
Again, my name is Lori and I love the Old Testament. I love it because sometimes it's a little bit hard. You have to kind of jump in and wrestle. You have to really work at it sometimes to study it, to understand sometimes what it's trying to say. There are other times when it's beautiful and clear and plain and precious. So we'll do a little bit of both to make sure that it's both complex and enriching and simple enough that we can appreciate it. Okay. The Old Testament, also called the Hebrew Scriptures, makes up like two-thirds of our scriptures. So I got out my really old um, missionary scriptures, actually. These are really old. So here's my old set of scriptures. And if you break up the Old Testament from the New Testament, it's like this section right here is like the Old Testament. And then it only goes to about here is the New Testament. And the rest of this is is uh, just additional reference material. So it takes up like two-thirds of of the Bible is the Old Testament. And it's not just one book, but it's a series of books. It's a library of books. That actually really helps us because they are, while they're carefully crafted and put in an order that will help us understand how God works with humanity, um, they each have their own style. They each have their own genre, it's called. Genre is just a big word for style. We're pretty used to this when you read, say, uh, you listen to a podcast, or you read a book, or you read a novel, you'll notice they each have their own style. Listening to a news broadcast is going to be a little more factual, we hope, uh, than, say, a novel. So when we read the Old Testament or the New Testament, any of our scriptures, we're going to say, what kind of book is it? For example, if you flip over to Psalms, you'll notice that they're more like poems. They're a little more poetic. There's uh there's there's just more illusions, more metaphors, things like that that kind of help us understand something that's more emotional. Where if you jump into a book like Joshua, it's kind of a historical narrative. It's talking about a lot of victories and wars, and it's not going to give you as much background onto people and their relationships. So each of these genres helps us understand what's going on. Another thing that I think is super helpful to understand scripture is to understand what its purpose is. The purpose of scripture seems to be it's a religious book and it's God trying to communicate with us his plans and his love for us. If we look at it sometimes the other way as what else can we find in there, say astrophysics or history or whatever, we might be a little bit disappointed because that might not be its primary purpose. So we might not be able to find everything we're looking for. So just just kind of a couple of ideas that we say we're going to look at at different genres and different styles of books, and we also want to look at its main purpose. Additionally, as the book is a series of books and it's really big, you're going to say, wow, that's a lot going on. When we jump into each of these books, it's helpful for me to understand what category or kind of chunk of the Old Testament or the Bible that they're in. So first, the Bible's, uh, all of Scripture is really big, and then you kind of take the Bible, and then you go into the Old Testament. When we go into the Old Testament, there's an old acronym, an old grouping that was historically used and still used today to try to kind of put these things into groups, um, and that is called the Tanakh. I actually have a version here. So so this is uh, uh, kind of a Hebrew version of the Old Testament called the Tanakh. Tanakh is an acronym, T-N-K, and it stands for each of these segments. T stands for Torah or instruction, sometimes called the law. Now, when you think of law, you might think of like a bunch of do's and don'ts, and there are sections of that. But the law is much more than that. In fact, you'll find the sections of the law are more story a narrative than they are a set of do's and don'ts. It's not really a legal code, but it's a set of teachings. It's a set of instructions. That's what T is. 
T for Tanakh. So the first group. So a lot of the books of the Old Testament are grouped into that first section, the Torah or the Tanakh. In fact, it's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy or the Torah, right? The first five books of Moses or the law. The next is called the <clears throat> the Nevi'im or the Nabi, so Tanakh, Tanakh, and, and Nabi means prophet. So it's called the prophets. So it's the section with basically everybody that has a name in there. So it's going to be names like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Obadiah. So all the guys with the names that are writing. There are some that we sometimes uh, categorize as histories, Joshua, Judges, um, but those kind of go into the prophets as well. And then last, Tanakh, K. K stands for Ketuvim, or a Hebrew word just means the writings. And that's everything else. So those are going to be like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job's, just kind of the um, everything else. Now, this grouping we know was used anciently because even the Savior used it. When some people approached him and they asked him, what was the greatest of all the laws? They're trying to trick him. And he says, love God and love your neighbor, taking scriptures from the Tanakh. He says, and upon this is all the law and the prophets. And so he is actually using this group, the law and the prophets, even then. So we can see that this grouping, this way to kind of consider them has been used for a long time. So just one way to kind of categorize where we are. We're going to jump into the Torah uh, to begin with. So we are in the book of Genesis. Now, when was the book of Genesis written and how old is it? It's very old. Uh, it has been around for thousands and thousands of years. It does look as well, just like the Book of Mormon, that there's been an editor, like Mormon, the great editor, that where he's taken sections and put things together. It's been carefully told so that we understand um, different things about our Heavenly Father, different things about our purpose in life and how God works with us on earth. We learn different things about the purpose of life and the plan of salvation. So right out of the beginning, we're going to say, well, this book of Genesis is powerful and it's going to tell us a lot of things. Casey spoke last week about how we also got the book of Moses and the book of Abraham. So those books are going to help us understand things that were um, maybe taken away or things that aren't as clear. They're going to add ideas. So today we're going to go through Genesis, Moses, and Abraham. And you're going to say, wow, why do we have the creation story so many times? In fact, today we're going to go through basically four different versions. Four, Lori, that was only three. But we're going to see Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, how they tell the story slightly differently. And we're going to talk about what happens there. Another great idea that I want to introduce you to is called a couplet. A couplet is a literary idea. It's where you tell the story twice or there's a couple of instances that are going to tell a story so that you can see it from maybe two different perspectives. Um, if you were going to tell a story, the greatest story that ever was, wouldn't you want to have as much information as possible? Yeah, and there isn't one definitive story. There might be different ideas, elements, concepts that the prophets are trying to teach us. And so we're going to see that over and over and over and again in scripture, that there might be multiple versions. Um, versions is a kind of a bad word. It makes you feel like something's weird with that. There are going to be multiple um, insights, multiple perspectives, multiple uh, retellings that help us understand different directions. Think, for example, of the Gospels. Um, in the Gospels, we get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We get four different accounts of the Savior's mortal ministry, death, resurrection. Why do we have four? Isn't it better having four than just one? We get different ideas, different emphases. And the same goes true for the 
story of the creation. We're going to see Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Moses 2 and 3, and Abraham 3. Um, We're going to see all these different versions. Now, those aren't the only versions in scripture of the creation. Can you think of any others? Can you think of any other examples of the creation in scripture or in teaching? Yeah, you bet. If you are a participant in the temple, you know that there is um, a narrative there that is told as well. Also, you're going to see stories. I can think of a few like um, in the Sons of Mosiah, they are teaching and they go back and start with the story of the creation. So there are small snippets and sections all throughout the scripture showing us how important the story of the creation is. So these different stories help us. Let's jump into the book of Genesis just to start. The book of Genesis, if uh, if we start right, we're still in structure, still in structure, point number one. So if we st- stay in there, you're going to see that the book of Genesis has two parts. And it's not really a half, but if you go through chapters 1 through 11, there's kind of a front section, and then 12 through 50. Go ahead and check it out in your scriptures. You'll see there are, are indeed 50 chapters. Chapters 1 through 11 tend to be this big picture view, all the stories that are like, we call them the cosmological view, like the cosmos and big picture. So you're going to see the creation of the world, the creation of humanity. You're also going to see the different nations set up and kind of where they came from and what they're like. So sometimes we call that the table of nations. So you'll find this idea of the 70 or the 72 that are there. Even Paul is going to use this later. We're also going to see this in the Doctrine and Covenants. So we're going to see this idea of these nations uh, being categorized. That's where you're also going to find stories like Noah. And Noah is almost a recreation, right? A rebirth of the world. So you're still in this big picture view. And you're going to lastly see the um, Tower of Babel, where things are going to be broken up and sent back out. So we're going to set some primary ideas that are going to be uh, throughout all of Scripture are going to be set in chapters 1 through 11, or this cosmological big picture view. Then in chapter 12, we change gears in Genesis, and we go to a story of a family. So God is going to show how he's going to work with people first in this cosmological view. And then we're going to kind of zoom in and we're going to take a look at a family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So we're going to zoom in on chapters 12 through 50. And so that's called the anthropomorphic view. That's a big word, but big view, little view. So you see a couplet right at the beginning in Genesis, you're going to see two different stories. You're going to see a lot of stories told multiple times. You're going to see stories where um, some of the same things happen to the prophets similarly to somebody else. And in the poetry, they use a lot of these parallels. They tell the story once or twice, or they say the line once or twice with sometimes compare and contrast. And you're supposed to say, hey, that's a little different. How is it different? And why is it different? So I want you to watch for those in script. They're really helpful to try to understand someone is trying to point out something to us, and we're going to do a little bit of that today. So we're going to see some couplets. Now, um, they weren't written on books, so I made up a really chintzy example of a scroll. So a book, what we call a codex with the cover and all that, um, wasn't created until later. And so originally, and it was easier for a long time, people wrote on scrolls. So I made up this really um, 
terrible example. This is a, it's a piece of brown paper with some fake seals. See how those go. And so you would write on the, the parchment, like scraped animal skin, and you would write on it. And so that's what was kept. Now, because you would store all these in a big pile or however they stored them in a jar or something, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, you wouldn't know what book this was. And so they would uh, just kind of peek on the corner here and they would say, oh, what book was this? In my imagination, this is how it goes. Uh, and, and right there in the first would be the first words. And so the first words of the scroll become the name of the book. So in Genesis, how does Genesis start? In the beginning or in a beginning, um, which in Hebrew is called Bereshit. And so the name of the Genesis scroll is in the beginning. It's the first few words, right? Kind of cool. So you're like, hey, it's not this one. Looking for the other one. Okay, cool. Um, that's also why you're going to see ideas like Samuel and Samuel is that the scrolls got too big. And so we think that they put them in two parts, even though they're the same one, just because the scroll got too, you know, how many, how many pages can you sew together? So, so they have um, Samuel one and two, although Samuel is the same book or Kings or Chronicles is the same book, just two halves. So, oh, hey, cool, right? All right. There's your scroll. Okay. It was written in Hebrew. Um, Hebrew is a language that uh, is, is now spoken today. It was brought back. So one of those dead languages that we have still, and scholars still get to study it. So um, while Moses and Abraham, we know were translated directly, we have Genesis, and we have some really old versions. We have some old sections from hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. And we have a, um, some of the oldest is from uh, Dead Sea Scrolls copies, and they're the same. And then we also have some sections, just chunks, uh, where, remember that thing gets brittle. So we have some chunks that are even older. And then um, from the Middle Ages, we have almost a complete section in Hebrew, so it's kind of cool. So I'm going to throw up um, just a little bit of Hebrew so you can see it. This um, on the slide is Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Um, this is in modern biblical Hebrew, so you'll see all those little dots and stuff around the letters. Hebrew reads from right to left instead of left to right. And so, um, and there are some uh, cheaters in here. They have some like number ones and twos and punctuation. But Hebrew didn't have punctuation. In fact, most ancient languages didn't have punctuation at all or paragraph breaks, breaks or verses or anything. All those things were added later. In the English scriptures, they were not added until we think until about the late 1100s, 12, early 1200s um, by a guy named Stephen Langton. Stephen Langton, you might know from the Magna Carta. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And they said, hey, um, in effect, hey, can you make this easier to read by breaking it up? So Stephen Langton went in and broke up and put in verses and chapter breaks, etc. in the Bible that we have today, which means that he had to kind of co-figure out where they are. Um, so those are um, really impressive that somebody went through, but they're where you're seeing them. So you're going to see in Genesis 1 and 2 that, that the story of Genesis 1 kind of wraps into Genesis 2 because he did the chapter break a little bit earlier. It's kind of cool. Um, so Hebrew. So here it says, um, uh, verse one, uh, and there are no vowels. They are written in later, those little dots on the top and the bottom of those squiggly lines. And uh, I'll just read it really quickly for you. So it says, this is a Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim veet haaretz, vecha aretz hayata tohu vavohu, vohoshek alpane tahom, veruak Elohim merachefet alpane hamayim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then um, it goes on. So that's that's the very first day. That is the first one. So that's enough of Hebrew. So kind of cool. But one of the reasons I wanted to point that out is because 
These are ancient peoples and they, while they're like us in their desires and their hopes and their dreams, their um, intent to follow God and sometimes be disobedient, they're just like us that way. In other ways, they're not like us. We're kind of like tourists when we go back in time. When we open the scriptures, we're becoming tourists. We put on our fanny packs and our plaid shorts and we zoom back in time and we're looking at a world that is not like our own. They speak different languages. They eat different foods. Um, their politics are different. How they interact with each other and what they value um, on some of the day-to-day -day may be different. So you're going to see that. So we'll try to point out some of those things that we know because it helps understand the story. Um, now, of course, they're just like us in the big ways. And so these stories are going to resonate with us. Okay, so that's some of the context in the setting. Hebrew, ancient, written on scrolls instead of parchment. Not everyone would have read as well. So one really great trick is if you want to uh, experience probably how scripture was, it was probably read or recited to you. And you can, you can hear some of it when you read it, that there'll be sometimes a cadence of the story. We're going to see some of that in Genesis 1. Remind me and I'll point it out. So when you... Uh, if you wanted to get the feeling for what it was like, even a couple hundred years ago, read it out loud. Um, the church website has a great little button you can hit and it will, uh, you can have a male narrator or a female narrator and you can listen to the scriptures read to you. Might be a great idea for a different way to kind of absorb and listen to the stories. So context, a, a time different on our own, different couplets told different ways, and also just a different structure, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the Tanakh, just some different ideas for how to st capture these big picture ideas. Now we're going into the book of Genesis and the book of Genesis is complex. It's big. We've talked about the first half being a big picture view and the second half being kind of zoomed in view, but the whole thing is about God working with humanity. And so let's jump in to part two, the content itself, and let's learn about Genesis. So I'm going to flip over to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one is the famous starting, which we are beginning, we just read, which has, let me get there really quickly, which um, we've probably heard a million times in the beginning. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of the God of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening of the morning were the first day. Okay, that's our first introduction. What a powerful intro. Now, I want you to point out that Genesis 1 is going to be a specific story of the creation. It's different than Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is the story and it's going to be repeated again in Moses 2 and we'll, and we'll get there in a second. But this is the seven creative periods. In Genesis 1, we're going to see God is going to be just creating these things from fiat. Did you catch it? He says, and God said, and then it follows this distinct pattern. And God said, and then let there be light. And there was light. And then he has a reaction to it, God said, and it was good. And then he names it the evening and the morning of the first day. So the day starts in the evening. Did you catch that? The evening and the morning. And the Hebrew Sabbath still goes that way, right? It starts at nightfall. And so the you're going to see he said, and then it happens. And then you're going to see, and it was 
good. So there's this cadence and then the naming of the days. Now, there's one instance that doesn't to try to keep some of the other cadence going. But um, check it out because you're going to see this interesting, if you hear it, you'll hear it over and over. And God said, what do we learn from that? You say, that's great, Lori. But what do we learn? First, that God is all powerful. God is majestic and transcendent. And when he speaks, things happen. So God is not only intentional about this, but he is making it happen. So the creation isn't an accident. The creation isn't something that we're like, I hope it works out. We're going to hear more about this in Abraham. But in Genesis 1, right out of the gate, we get the idea that God is telling us and God or God is saying things. So he's making it happen. He's transcendent. He's all powerful. And through the power of his voice, through the power of his um, saying, things come into being. Additionally, this is where we're going to see what he thinks about it. So did you catch it? He said, and it was good. At the very end of this creation period, he's also going to say something else. He's going to say it was very good. What does that mean? I think that is powerful, that God is creating this world and this whole creation for us. And we're going to see that in a second. And it's not haphazard. It's good. And it's not just good. It's very good. Uh, It is a testimony to me that the Lord loves us right out of the gate with these first few words that God loves us and created this intentionally for us. We're going to learn more about that in Abraham 3. But here in Genesis 1, it's unavoidable. Genesis 1 continues, and we go on through the creation uh, days. So you're going to see um, the separation of light and darkness, day one. Day two, you're going to see some of the um, uh, sea and sky. So there's kind of this uh, this firmament. Uh, in Hebrew, the word's the rachia. And so it kind of like this, it's like separates. And so then you have, and if you, stay, if, if you imagine yourself in the creation story, not in a 21st century view from space and like a globe floating from space. That's kind of how I view it. Um, But if you put yourself in this story for just a second, and you put yourself standing on the earth, just imagine yourself in a giant field of dirt. And then you look up, you're going to see the dome of the skies and the earth spread out before you. That's how an ancient person would have seen it, right? They wouldn't have seen it from space. So take a look and and read through it and see if you don't see that separation of earth and sky. So you're going to say, uh, or sea and sky. So you're going to see separation of water and sky whoosh, like this. And then, you know, rain comes down. So you're going to see this separation. Um, you're going to see the separation in day two. Then in day three, you're going to see, looking at my notes, um, the land and the plants start. So there's even, so their first three days, you're going to see separation of light and dark. Day two, uh, sea and land. Day three, some plants and and um, uh, land on the plant and the plants. So day three is plants. Now here's something really fascinating. The next three days are kind of a repeat. I know it's true. You might not have seen it before, but I love this. The first three days parallel the days four, five, and six. So I'm going to throw up a slide really quickly here that's going to show. So in day four, it's kind of, uh, let's go through day four, five, and six. Day four is the sun, moon, and stars. Now day one, you already saw the light from the darkness. But day four specifically says these the greater light, the lesser light, we're going to see the creation of the lights themselves. So we're going to see light on day one, and then we're going to see more specific light on day four. Then day Five is the fish and the birds. Day six are animals and humans. So the first three days kind of parallel 
the last three days, meaning first God sets everything into order. He sets it and he creates it, and then he's going to fill it. So he's going to give it purpose. So you kind of see it. It's like a couplet right there in Genesis 1. So the first three days and the other three days. And then what happens on day seven? But rest, right? So rest. So God creates it and then he fills it. See if you don't see the parallels between days one, two, three and days four, five and six. I think it's showing great organization. I think it's showing how much God is creates something and gives its purpose at the same time. Now, there are other examples where the days are in slightly different orders, and that's okay. I don't think that there's a right answer. I think each of these stories, each of these um, tellings, each of these views or vistas into their creation are trying to tease out something that the Lord wants to show us individually. So um, there are a couple different ways we do that in Scripture. One is called a harmonization. So you could take all these versions of the creation and you could like mishmash them together like this. And that's called a harmony. And we do that a lot with the Gospels. You're trying to figure out Jesus's life um, like on a timeline. Um, and that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to look at each book by itself. Um, I think of the um, Franken scripture version, like a turducken, like you have a turkey and a duck and a chicken, and they're delicious when you eat them all together. But I want you to break them out. I want you to try each one separately um, and see what they say, because they've been perfectly crafted and perfectly told from the prophets and the Holy Spirit to say, hey, I want you to see something in this story. So it helps to look at the compare and contrast, but look at them first by themselves. So in the Genesis story, you're going to see this these days go in this order because I think it's going to show us the order, the majesty, and the purpose of life. So what was the first thing? Light and darkness. What was the last thing? Humanity. The last thing that God creates is humanity, and he creates them together. So there's no name. There's no Adam and no Eve. There's no garden. That's going to be all in Genesis 2. But in day six, we see that humanity is created as God's pinnacle, as the peak of everything that he wants to create. And they are created together. Um, they're equals. And I think there's great emphasis there so that we have more application. So point number three on our structure, what, what does that mean? that God has purpose for all of us and that we are best, not necessarily, we can't always make this happen, but we are best when we are together as men and women, as married couples. And there it is right there in Genesis 1, that we are the culmination of his creation. We're the pinnacle and zenith, the purpose of everything that this earth was created for, and we're created together. We see some of that in Genesis 1. So, Take apart the uh, turducken, take apart the Franken scripture and start with Genesis 1. See what the structure is and see if it doesn't show some things. Watch for the things like he said and there and then the morning or the evening and the morning of the day. See that cadence and also look for some of the ideas of what was created when and what maybe it was saying about God in our lives. I know that it, you'll see that it was very good. Now, on the last day, um, God rests, and we see this first reference to the Sabbath cycle, so seven days. So we're going to see the seven creative periods. We're going to see the seven days. Now, the law of Moses hasn't happened yet, so we're not going to get this um, idea, but we'll see it right here, that there's this cadence of sacred time, a cadence of time and separation, something sanctified and consecrated for something special. Does the seventh day end? Ah, 
you might want to go look that up. So the other days end, but does the seventh day end? All right, let's, that's Genesis 1. Um, let's jump into Genesis 2. So let me jump over there. Now, what I mentioned earlier with Stephen Lincoln creating these chapter verses, etc., is that um, the very end of the the first version of creation, the first, don't, don't, sorry, I keep saying version, and I don't want you to get the wrong idea, the first retelling, the first um, teaching of it um, is in Genesis 1, and then it kind of wraps over into Genesis 2, because I think Stephen Langton um, wanted to highlight it or cut it a little bit early. And if you look at verse 4, you'll see there's a little like backwards P. That's a paragraph marker. So it's telling us an idea of a paragraph, um, a different idea. But the beginning of Genesis 2 is the end of Genesis 1, chapter before. Um, so there you go. Then we jump into this different telling of the story. And it goes like this. Um, Genesis 2, verse 4. Um, actually, it's kind of the second half. These are, the, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Um, whenever you use that, like, two opposite ends, like heavens and earth. And notice it isn't heavens and hell. I think that's kind of telling. Um, but anytime you use that, like um, old and young, uh, heavens and earth, uh, any anything that's kind of like the two ends, the knowledge of good and evil, that's called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M, a merism in Hebrew. And it's the idea of everything in between. So we say that like everyone came to the meeting, young and old. And we don't mean just young and old people. We mean everyone came. And so they use that a lot in Hebrew. So heavens and the earth. It can mean those two things, but it can also mean everything in between. Um, so the same thing, the knowledge of good and evil might be the knowledge of everything we actually start to understand. Uh, and it can also be important to just see that God is creator over everything. God is creating and has a plan for all things. Then it kind of, the story kind of starts over. Verse five, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. And then it zooms in and we see um, this next big event. But there went up a mist from the midst, mist, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put man whom he had formed. Now we're going to jump in a little bit more to a spiritual creation and the Pearl of Great Price. But for now, you'll notice that man is created first in Genesis 2, where humanity was created last. And you might say that looks like just zooming in on day six, um, but it looks like he hadn't even created the garden yet. So it looks like we're telling the story, story with a different emphasis. We're trying to highlight something. So the the prophets have left these scriptures side by side for a reason, and I think they're beautiful um, this way. So as we jump into Genesis 2, what is this telling us? Uh, humanity is God's first creation. And so I think there's an application to Adam being created first. Now, he's not even named at this point. Um, and so we're going to see uh, something cool with that in a second. Also, you're going to see this is where we're going to get the idea of the garden. So you're going to see God created a garden eastward in Eden. So there's garden 
in Eden. So there's Eden, a garden, and then he's going to plant these trees right in the middle. So you're going to start to see this threefold pattern going throughout the scripture right here from verse eight onward. Um, also, he's going to create humanity and then place him in the garden. So we're going to hear more about that. But we're going to see that humanity is God's um, ultimate creation and the purpose of this creation, that the garden and all of this is created for us, not the other way around. Now, that doesn't mean we should be irresponsible with um, our world. In fact, quite the opposite. He's going to tell us that we should take care of it, right? So we should be able to take care of it. And I think we're going to get those instructions in a second. Um, but we see in verse 9, uh, and we're going to talk about that next week, but we're going to see uh, there was the tree, two trees. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, those two trees are set right in the middle. So it should be like, ooh, the point of the story. And again, they're not like crushed over to the side. Notice they're in the midst. They're in the middle. So you're going to see this very idea. The whole purpose of the story is to try to share um, that the purpose of that. I want to point out a couple other things about Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, we read that it was Elohim. So we're going to see that the father is involved. In Genesis 2, we see the Lord, and we're going to see more of the idea of the Savior. Now, it's going to become even clearer in Moses 2. Um, so let's go there really quickly. So I'm going to jump over to Moses 2. Actually, I want to go to Moses 3, since we did. So Moses 3 is very similar, and I want to read how it starts out in verse 5. So in Moses 3 verse 5, um, it reads a little bit differently than we just read in Genesis 2. So see if you can catch it. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For I, the Lord God, created all things which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. For I, the Lord God, had not caused it to rain upon the face of the earth. And I, the Lord God, had created all the children of men, and not Yet a man to till the ground, for in heaven created I them, and there was not flesh upon the earth, neither was in the water, neither in the air. So it was quite different, right? But you can see little pieces where it's the same, where God is creating something, but he says, I created humanity before all of them, before they came on the earth. And we learn that we're created spiritually before. So we see that um, indeed that we existed before we came. Additionally, we're going to see these really powerful ideas that um, that it's the Savior is also here. So we're going to learn if we go back in uh, uh, we, this idea of the Lord God. So the Lord God. So we're going to get this idea that the, the Savior, Jehovah, was also the creator. So in chapter one, we get the idea of Elohim. Great. And then chapter two more, right? We get more information. We get this information of uh, the Savior, Jehovah, being part of this creation. So powerful that this was planned all along. Um, keep going because this gets really exciting. So we get down, they create the first living soul, they create the tree of life, and the, uh, the uh, uh, tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil both come. And then there are some instructions. So in, I'm going to jump over to Moses 3. And these are very similar in Genesis 2. Um, Moses 3 in Genesis 2. And I'm in Moses 3, 15. And I, the Lord God, took the man and put in, into... Let me start over. And I, the Lord God, took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. 
So that's take care of it. Our assignment, we already know, I want you to go grow these communities and parks and schools and and governments. And I want you to, to have families. And I want you to go out and, and create and do science and art and do everything. Take this and dress it and keep it and take care of it. And do, go be you, go be humans and do all the awesome things that humans can do. That's my interpretation of what that means. And then he gives some instructions um, that... Uh, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. Nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself, and it is given unto thee. But remember that I forbid it, and for, for in the day that thou sh- eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Verse 18, And I, the Lord God, said unto mine only begotten, that it was not good that man should be alone. Wherefore, I should make a helpmeet for him. So right out of the gate, we're going to get a few things. We're going to talk about the tree next week, but we're going to see there's this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life isn't mentioned again because it's going to come in until a little bit later. But we're going to see that we have choice. That right from the beginning, it's like, hey, this is about you guys growing up and learning. And then we learn this other important thing. So we've created Adam naturally, and we haven't named him yet, but he's there. And then we say um, the the that the savior said the lord says to the savior my only begotten that it wasn't good for man to be alone wherefore i will make a help meet for him now i just wanted to highlight this there's so much to highlight but i wanted to point out and i'm in moses 318 there this help meet idea this idea has been abused for centuries and i just want to shake that out of our uh, understanding as latter-day saints that um, help meet doesn't mean an inferior. We're not like, hey, I hope that we have someone that can bake bread and do tasks for us. Kind of a servant, wouldn't that be great? And that um, Eve is some kind of lesser or inferior. Um, I know that most of us, both men and women, we would find that appalling. And so we know that's not true. We've seen that in, in Genesis 1 and we've met each other. So we know that we're both awesome. But I want to say that there's an idea of equality here and there's an idea of an important point. And that's the term help meet. Uh, help meet's a pretty good translation, but the idea in Hebrew of help meet is the term called ezer, E-Z-E-R. That term is used like 21 more times in the Old Testament, and it means helper, but it means more than that. And the first couple of vers- uh, times that word ezer, helper, uh, is used is, uh, is t- are telling because they're about Eve. They're right here. And then the next times are all when it's used in the pretty much used as the savior himself as the lord who is going to be the lord is my ezer the lord is my helper like a savior a helper a rescuer someone who's not inferior because the lord is not inferior but someone who can come and save us now little s here we're not talking um eve being a savior and a big s but with the idea of someone who's equal, someone who can help bring salvation, and who can is equally important. And and just the same for Adam, Adam is the Ezer to Eve. So they are helpers, they are saviors, they are equals, and only together can they do great things. So or the best of things. Um, So the idea right here out of the gate in Moses three, and in Genesis two, is that Adam and Eve are meant to be together and they are best. And in fact, they will help save each other um, through marriage and through help and support that we are best when we are with each other. Right here in chapter 18 of Moses 3. A couple other things that we can kind of draw out as kind of applications. We noticed in 
Genesis 1 that God was speaking by a fiat and he was kind of like, he said, and it were like these amazing things. In Genesis 2 and in Moses 3, we see the idea that God is going to form man and he's going to plant man and he is going to build a garden. Those ideas are are very um, different than the first. It's the idea of God being right there with us on the earth that God is forming. Like the word is like a potter. He's like creating humanity and that he's on earth kind of with us that that God is much more relational, that our Father in heaven and our Savior are right here with us in this whole plan, and they're forming and creating and building and planting, that God is very relational. God isn't just far away. Now, God is majestic and transcendent, and I don't want to disabuse that idea, but we got that in one. But in in, in Genesis 2 and in Moses 3, we get the idea of God being close and intentional, planting, building, creating. We're supposed to be here. You're supposed to be here. And he formed and created you just the way you are. And he gave you your free will so that you could learn to dress and keep the garden, that you could be the best humanity with your Ezer, and you could be the very best and just like them. And there it is right there in the words that we've chosen to tell. Now, this is also where you're going to see man is created, um, first instead of last, because we learned that they were formed spiritually. But I also think that we're going to get this more idea where we get into the garden of our purpose, and we're going to drive in. So just like Genesis 1 through 11 is this big picture view, Genesis 1 is big picture view, and then Genesis 2 and Moses 3 are zooming in views. There are different views about the people version, like Genesis 12 through 15 is going to be about a family. Moses 3, Genesis 2 is going to be about the people. And we're going to learn their names, their purpose, and some about them. So see the couplet where we're learning different things. All right. Pretty cool, right? Oh, there's so much good to say. So great. All right, let's jump over really quickly to Abraham 3. So we've learned a little bit about the purpose of life, God's creation and purpose. We've learned a little bit about humanity and God wanting to be close and relational to us. We've also learned that we're best together. Um, So there's more there. Let's see what else we can find. I'm going to jump over to Abraham. Um, I'm actually going to go to Abraham uh, 3, and I'm going to scroll down. You can't see me do it. Um, But I want to go down to this uh, different idea. Now, we've been talking about different versions of these different tellings, different insights from different prophets about the creation and the purpose of life. And each one tell us things about ourselves and our relationship to the Savior. In Abraham 3, we learned some very important points, and I know that you have heard these before. Um, I'm going to go to Abraham 3.22, and I want you to hear this now with the insights of Genesis 1 and 2 and Moses 3 for the first time, the creation of humanity, its purpose to choose, to dress and keep the garden, to be together, to be the culmination, to be the phrase that I did not read, which was, let's create them in our own image. We are to be like them, their image bearers. And that's why idolatry is going to be so bad, because we are already the images, the idols, the representation of God. And anytime we look to something else, we're diminishing our relationship with him. So we are the image, we are like him, we can become like them. And let's jump back into this really powerful idea into Abraham 3, verse 22. Now the Lord, we're talking, Lord, uh, Abraham is writing here. 
Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was, and among all these were many of the noble and great ones. And God saw these souls, that they were good. And he stood in the midst of them, and he said, These I will make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham, thou wast one of them. Thou wast chosen. Thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. And there stood one among them that was like unto God. And he said unto those who were with him, We will go down, for there is space there. And we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. Verse 25. And we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord God shall command them. And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. And they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Verse 27, And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered like unto the Son of Man, Here I am, send me. And another answered, Here I am, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. The book of Abraham teaches us that the Savior was there in the beginning and the purpose of our lives were created before we even came, that we existed before our mortal existence, and that the plan of salvation was rolled out then, and that the Lord was chosen to be the Savior. Here I am. Send me. He steps forth and becomes the Savior of the world even before we got here. Um, what a beautiful testimony to the love God has for all of us that he created a way for us to return, a way for us to learn, a way for us to be like him, and a Savior for us to follow. Brothers and sisters, I love the scriptures because they teach us so much about our purpose, how much the Lord loves us, and how much by following the Savior, Jesus Christ, we can return to become the image bearers and the humanity to tend and keep the, the garden, to become as heirs to each other, to become more like our heavenly parents. Um, that's my testimony, and I hope that you love the scriptures as much as I do, and I am grateful for them. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So really quick recap. We've done some overview. We've gotten into the content and we've done a little bit of application. Did you remember the two questions I asked at the beginning? What was some of the history and the background? What were they trying to say? Did you come up with anything? And what about that second question? What applications do you have? Uh, your assignment is just to jot those down on your phones or in your journals and see if you can't make these come alive in your own life this week and come follow me. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot. See you next time. Brought to you by Cedar Fort Publishing and Media. The people behind the stories in the Old Testament were not always the heroes we now see them to be. They were real people with real struggles. They were sinners, failures, and doubters. But they were also conduits for miracles and wonders. The heroes are the people who failed, struggled, and were imperfect, and yet had the strength to return to God. Wrapping together history, language, culture, and motifs, author Lori Denning brings light and deeper interpretation to the Old Testament stories we already know so well. With these powerful examinations of Abraham, Miriam, Gideon, Ruth, and more, you will come to know the real men and women behind the pages, their mistakes, their failings, and their triumphs. Recognize the Lord in every story as he works to make these imperfect people better. Understand that we can also succeed in Christ, no matter our present doubts or imperfections. Just like the men and women whose stories are recorded in scripture, we, too, can become instruments in the Lord's hand and be heroes of our own lives. All it takes is putting our trust and our faith in God. 
Find it in May 2022 at cedarfort.com.